I do want to read again uh, verses 24 through 26 as we continue in this little section. Then Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Let's pray that God would add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Father, the inspired, inerrant, infallible portion of the sermon is complete. So I pray that you would send your Spirit now to impress these words on our hearts and help us to understand them. I pray that truth would reign. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Since we took a little detour last week, I want to take a minute and just, by way of recap, remind ourselves of where we have been so that we can situate ourselves in this passage and and keep in mind the proper context of the words of Jesus. In verses 13 through 19, we spent many weeks there talking about the church. But remember that Jesus had asked Peter... Who do people say that I am? And and Peter responded by saying, My battery's dead. Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus affirmed that. In other words, yes, Peter, you are correct. His confession was true. And then Jesus went on to say, Upon this rock, upon this confession, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In other words, the church will be victorious. It cannot be defeated. But then, Jesus goes in verse 21 to explain to His disciples that He must suffer and die and be raised. So the church can't be defeated. But the Messiah must suffer and die. So then, of course, as we would expect, Peter is this sort of outraged at the very notion that the Messiah would suffer. You said that your church will not be defeated. You, you affirmed, yes, you are the Messiah. So how could you possibly suffer and die? And so he says, this shall never happen to you. And though Jesus stops him in his tracks and he explains the problem. Peter, you're thinking about the things of man. You're thinking in a man-centered way, not a God-centered way. You've set your mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. You're thinking in terms of the earthly and the temporal, not the godly, not the eternal. You're not considering the big picture. And so then we come to verses 24 through 26. And I've sort of given the, the main heading over these three verses... 
the comprehensive necessity of suffering in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Peter, it's not just me. All of us must suffer. Every citizen of the kingdom of heaven must suffer. Now, it is very obvious the, the prosperity gospel is immediately debunked in just a few sentences by Christ. I think it's very interesting that Satan's accusation of Job was that he only loves you, God, because you give him stuff and you take care of him. And the prosperity gospel says, love God and he'll give you stuff and take care of you. This is the complete opposite. All of human history, especially Christian history, denies the fact or denies that false gospel. And all of Scripture denies this false gospel. And, and Jesus, in just a few sentences, is teaching contrary to that false gospel. If that's not clear enough, let me read to you a few other references. I want us to really comprehend this. I think for many of us we may still be confused about how this works. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are you when... Others revile you and persecute you, and other utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Notice not if, when. Blessed are you when. Who's the blessed man? It's the Christian. It's the happy man. You will have this, and this persecution will come because you are this way. Matthew 10, 22, Jesus preparing His disciples for ministry said, And you will be hated by all for My name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You will be hated by all. In John 15 and verse 19, Jesus says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In Romans 8, chapter 17, Paul tells those Roman believers that they are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided... Or, or on this condition, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29, Paul tells the Philippian Christians, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. It's been granted your belief has been granted, it's a gift. Your suffering has been granted, it's a gift. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not all who desire to have the label Christian, not all who will simply take up the name of the Christian God, but all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Again, not if, when. Count it joy when it happens. Peter said this in 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's 
sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you don't share in His sufferings, then when His glory is revealed, when He returns, it's not going to be a happy time because you will have proven yourself not to be converted. John wrote to the church in Smyrna, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And the psalmist says in Psalm 119 and verse 71, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. You see, that which is displayed in the lives of the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints, that which is explained in the writings of the New Testament authors, is that which Jesus has taken up as His main focal point in these verses. Namely, if you are to be a follower of Jesus, you must set aside all aspirations of health and wealth and prosperity. You have to expel from your presence any idea of or dreams of self-promotion. You must become a walking, talking martyr. You die to yourself. As John the Baptist said, He must increase, I must decrease. To what extent will we like to see Christ increase? Then to that same extent, we must seek to see ourselves decrease. So that's been our topic. Not just the reality of suffering... Like we're just passive. Yeah, it's going to happen. Get ready. Brace ourselves. Be strengthened in the faith. That's true. But our topic is more specific. It is the requirement of fully or giving yourself fully to that lifestyle as the necessary consequence of following the suffering servant. Not just I'm going to sit and wait for it to happen, but I will gladly give myself to it. As the Hebrew Christians were saying, you, they, they, they gladly accepted the plundering of their property. This is not about victimhood. Like the world is out to get us and we've got to prepare because they're coming to get us. No, this is submission. I give myself to it. So week one, we looked at the requirement for discipleship. What is required if you will follow Jesus? Well, you must deny yourself. You must take up your cross and you must follow Jesus. Then week two, we looked at the reality of discipleship. Contrary to what we might desire, preservation of life is going to equal the loss of life. Yielding of one's life for the sake of Christ and the gospel, that's going to bring us true life. That's going to save our lives. In other words, we live when we die. That's the kingdom ethic. Life through death. Completely contrary to anything that any human being would ever come up with on their mind. That is the kingdom. It's the opposite. So we've looked at the requirement and we've looked at the reality of discipleship and so now we come to the third concept in this this comprehensive necessity of suffering, the third heading is the rhetorical simplicity of discipleship. The rhetorical simplicity of discipleship. Now why do I call it rhetorical? 
It's because what we're about to study is given to us in as far as the, as the literary genre or literary form is concerned. Jesus here teaches in the form of two rhetorical questions. That is, they're questions that are put forth not to receive an answer. They're questions that are asked because the answer to the questions is just so obvious. The questions with such obvious answers that when we reason through it in our mind, the question actually becomes a statement of truth. That's what we say when we, we talk about a rhetorical question. And I also use the term simplicity. The rhetorical simplicity of discipleship. When we take these questions and we reason through them and we receive the truth that Jesus is stating, it's not complex. It's not difficult to understand that what Jesus is trying to get across, the truth concerning being a disciple, is not a complex truth. There isn't a lot of clarification needed to explain this concept. There's no nuance in Jesus' words. He's not sort of clouding it so we would say, well, it sounds like you're saying this, but what do you really mean? And there's none of that. The, the essence of discipleship all boils down to an idea so basic that a child can understand it. It's very simple. Not simplistic, but simple. In other words... The straightforward nature of discipleship is so glaringly obvious that Jesus can teach it using rhetorical questions like, is rain wet or do birds fly? That's a question. What I'm saying by asking question is yes. That's what he's doing. They're rhetorical questions and this concept is very simple. It doesn't get any more clear than this. Just as plainly as Jesus had taught His disciples that He must suffer, He now explains that they too must suffer if they are to be His disciples. And so we have in this verse two questions. And we're going to spend two weeks on these questions. And so the first question is this. Verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? and forfeits his soul? First question. It's rhetorical. You don't have to answer, but we're going to work through it so that the answer becomes obvious. What shall it profit a man? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Now we know the term profit means to derive some sort of benefit. Jesus is asking ultimately what good will it be? What will it yield? What will be the fruit? What will it profit? And he says, Amen. He's speaking of no one specifically, but everyone, all people in, in general. Any man who finds himself considering the hypothetical scenario of verses 24, or verse 24, could also fit here. Remember, this is all inclusive. He said in verse 24, if anyone would come after me. In verse 25, for whoever would save his life, any man, any woman, any boy, any girl, you, you pick the person. You pick the richest person or the poorest person, the smartest person 
or the least knowledgeable person, the most respectable person, or the most obscure person, anybody, it doesn't matter. Take your pick. Choose anybody. And what shall it profit that person, that man? What benefit shall this supposed man derive? What, what shall it profit? Now another way that we talk about profit is we talk about financial gain over and above operating costs or bills. Profit is the amount, the amount by which you come out ahead at the end of the day or the end of the week or the end of the, the quarter. The end of the fiscal year when, when, you've, when you've evened it all out, the money you get to keep over and above, that's, that's your profit. We would say a non-profit organization is an organization that brings in just what it takes to operate. They're not trying to make extra money. So profit is extra. It's leftovers. It's undesignated benefit. Now this is where I want us to fix, uh, fixate our attention. Because I believe the language that's used here requires it. Here's the question. What will be mine at the end of the business day or the end of the fiscal year? What will I get? See, Jesus is using terminology that sets us up for a question that is analogous to a, a commercial or a financial dilemma. He wants those who are considering being His disciples to count the cost, weigh the gains and the losses. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus says this, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. You see, Jesus believes wholeheartedly in the idea of counting the cost when it comes to being His disciple. As a matter of fact, He finishes that teaching by saying, So therefore, if any one of you, or any one of you who does not renounce all that He has, cannot be My disciple. Count the cost, prepare to denounce it all, and if you can't, you cannot be My disciple. So here in Matthew, Jesus has, as it were, encouraged His disciples to take out the legal pad and draw up a ledger in order to count the cost. So what are the factors in this, in this equation? Well, He says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? So on the ledger, underneath gain... You write the whole world. Now in keeping with the context, I believe that he has something in mind when he says the whole world. Remember in verse 23, he had rebuked Peter for setting his mind on the things of man. That is the things that pertain to the earthly, temporal humanity of mankind. The things of man. And then in verse 24, he said that if anyone would, anyone would be his disciple, he must deny himself. 
And the self is how all of the things of man relate to you as an individual. Yourself. You've got to deny that. And then in verse 25, he said, Whoever would save his life will lose it. We said that life is that non-physical you that gets or receives fulfillment from or joy or satisfaction or stimulation or pleasure or excitement or supposed benefit from all of the things of the world as they relate to you as an individual. That's your, your, your life. So the goal of saving one's life. I've worked and I've tried to save my life and here Jesus lays out, here is the ultimate goal that you might achieve. Gain the whole world. So Jesus is asking, what if a man does all this? What if he sets his mind on the things of men, temporal, earthly things? He, he sets his affections on himself and how all of those things can benefit him. And then for the rest of his life, he works and he labors and he contemplates and he plans and he orchestrates all of his life so that his life will be fulfilled by all of these things. And he will have a fulfilling life by worldly standards. At the end of the day, that man that has done all of that, his gain is the whole world. The term world here is cosmos. It's talking about the entire created realm. Again, I think to be analogous to the things of man, the self and life. This is the whole world. All fulfillment. All joy, all satisfaction, all stimulation, all pleasure, all excitement, all of the honor and the respect from everyone, all of the power and authority that a man can have, all of the wealth. It's the whole world, every bit of it. Jesus is saying, take any person and give them that. Give that one person everything. Now let's just think about this in terms of just net worth. Bill Gates is the richest man in the world. He is worth $75 billion. Just so we're clear, nobody in this room understands that number. You can't describe $75 billion, but he's worth that. The second richest man in the world, Amancio Ortega, is worth $67 billion. We've come down a tad, but still we, don't, we can't comprehend it. The third richest man in the world is Warren Buffett, coming in, taking up the, the bronze medal at $60.8 billion. If you were to take the ten richest people... The ten richest singular beings on planet earth and add up their net worth, it comes out to $541.5 billion. So Bill Gates, who is the richest man on planet earth, actually is only worth 13.8% of the net worths of the top ten richest people in the world. Now imagine one man gets it all. That's just ten people. Imagine one man gets it all. There is no more list. 
No one else owns anything. One man owns everything. Everything is under this one man. He owns all of the houses, all of the lands, all of the animals, all of the cars, all of the gadgets and the the patents for every new invention. He owns all of the corporations, all of the sand on the seashores of the beaches, every fish in the oceans, every animal and leaf and tree stump in the rainforest, every pebble in the rivers. He owns it all. Imagine this man. Now here's a reality check. One man could ever only gain a microscopic portion of the whole world. Even Bill Gates, richest man in the world, he owns a fraction, a microscopic fragment of the whole world. Nobody can gain the whole world. It doesn't matter how much you work, how much you strive, nobody's going to get the whole world. But Jesus says, let's just say for the sake of argument, you do. You do get the whole world. He's using an absurdity to prove his point. So, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So we've got our gain column, the whole world, everything. We've got our loss column, his soul. That's the question. Now what is the soul? This is the same word that was used in verse 25 for life. And I, I do believe that the translators did a good job here by using two different English words to explain the point Jesus is trying to make. The soul, again, is the non-physical you. It is the essence of the life within you. The soul is that which causes you to live. It causes you to be more than just a pile of meat and bones. It makes you more than a corpse. That's your soul. And within your soul would be accounted your mind, your will, your affections, your emotions. All of that comes from the immaterial part of you. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, we read, "...the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground." So there we have a body. And then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So the difference between the body and the soul is a body and then a living creature. The soul is the life of a person. The soul of a man is what gives us the ability to think thoughts. It's not just our brain firing off electrical charges We can think thoughts because we have a soul. We can reason within ourselves because we have a soul. It's because a man has a soul that he can love deeply or hate vehemently. That comes from the soul. It is the soul that discerns truth from error, that contemplates options. What am I going to do here? What's going to be right and wrong? Which would be moral and immoral? The soul is what gives you that ability. The soul can long or yearn for something while despising something else. The soul in you is what relates to other souls. So that we're not just bodies bumping into each other. We actually relate. When my wife was away a couple days this week, 
my soul was still relating to her soul because I longed for her to be around. And my children, I wanted them to be around, not so I could see bodies, but so that I could be in the presence of other souls that I love. Because you have a soul, you can rationalize and choose. Because you have a soul, you can tolerate or be intolerant. That's your soul. It does all of that. Without a soul, we can hook up machines and make a body do certain things. But we call that a vegetable. It's just going to sit there. There's no life in that body. And James tells us that the body apart from the spirit or the soul is dead. The soul is that which is first saved and united to Christ. When we become believers, our soul leads the way. The Spirit comes in and takes our soul, and someday our bodies will follow in that regenerating process. When Paul says to the Ephesians that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places currently, he doesn't mean that our bodies are in heaven sitting beside Jesus. He's saying our souls, having been united to Christ, are already there. It's the immaterial part of us that exists with Christ. When the body dies, the soul will go either to be with the Lord or to a place of judgment to await the final judgment. And eventually, when Christ returns, every body will be reunited with its soul to go to the final judgment where God will either gather the lost and send them to eternal punishment, soul and body, or He will gather, or, or He will also gather His people to Himself, and we will spend eternity in, the, in His blessed presence. Every person has a soul. Jesus says, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? The word forfeit here again is a financial term. It means to be financially penalized. Whatever you did, it cost you your soul. What does this look like? If you have a Bible still open, turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. And I will begin reading in verse 16. It says, He told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So think about this man. What has he done? He worked. He labored. He got the fruit of his labor. He acquired wealth. He acquired grain. Has he done anything wrong yet? Nope. And then he thought, I don't have anywhere to put this grain. i got to have somewhere to store it. So he said, I'll build a bigger barn so that I can put in this grain that I've 
acquired. So he works to accommodate his wealth, and then he says, once I'm done with that, I'll be able to relax. I think it's interesting that he says, as he's talking to himself, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. He, he considers his soul his own to just gratify however he pleases, just carry out life however he pleases, do whatever he needs to do. And once his soul was put at ease and at comfort, he could just take a break. And God says, you fool, your soul this night is required of you. Now that man was not expecting this. I think this is a truth that needs to be understood. You don't know when God is going to come and say, this night your soul is required of you. God says, in essence, you have been given a life. You've been given a soul. And you have been expected to steward it well. Now it's time to face the books and see how you have done. He worked, he acquired, he made accommodations for what he had acquired. He decided to rest. You see, he had certainly laid up for himself himself treasure on the earth, but he had stored up none in heaven. He had staked no claim on a heavenly home. He had no earnest put down securing an eternal home because he had focused on saving his life. Filling his soul with earthly pleasures. That's what it looks like to gain the whole world and lose your soul. Because there will come a point when God says, alright, it's time to give it back. So here's Jesus' question. In other words, at the end of the life of a man who has accrued to his account the whole world at the cost of his soul, what will we put at the bottom at the profit line? Up at the top, under gain, whole world. Beside gain, under loss, one soul. The whole world was gained. All of the money, all of the pleasure... All of the respect, all of the friends, all of the comfort. No one will ever get that much. But let's just say you did gain, but the loss, one single soul. What's the balance at the bottom? What's the profit? We might say, well, it looks like the whole world minus one soul, correct? No. At the bottom of the page, beside final balance, hell. No profit. You leave with nothing. You get hell. You see, Jesus' question is rhetorical. Hopefully that answer was obvious. What shall it profit a man? Nothing. To set one's mind on the things of man, to refuse to deny yourself and gratify the desires of the flesh, to labor in your life, to save your temporal life, all of that in contrast to following Jesus, is to sacrifice the salvation of your soul. In other words, you have traded eternal union in the presence of Christ with 80 years of promiscuous affairs with the things of the world. Notice here... The simplicity of discipleship. Following Jesus means setting your mind on the things of God, denying yourself, taking up your cross, giving over your earthly life. All of that is difficult. 
Yes, there's suffering. Yes, there's hardship. Read the Psalms. You will say with the psalmist, how come the wicked get all of this stuff? How come the wicked just get to do whatever they want? Nobody's punishing them. And here are we who we've given our lives to your service. We're trying to please you and we've been handed over to suffering. Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it. The Bible never sugarcoats it. It says this is how it will be in this life. But the only other option is eternal separation from God in hell. The only other option. Here's the simplicity. Follow Jesus, eternal life. Gain the world, eternal death. A suffering Messiah to these men was, without a doubt, hard for them to handle. It was hard for them to to stomach this concept. Now they've heard that they too must deny themselves, that they must take up the instrument of their own public torture and suffering, their cross, join the death march, and suffer right behind Him. The kingdom of heaven is populated by those who will suffer with and for their Messiah. And so the disciples have been given two options. Set your mind on the things of God or on the things of man. Deny yourself or gratify yourself. Lose your life or save your life. Now perhaps at this point Jesus has sensed some doubting. Maybe they're beginning to question the whole commitment. He knows their reservations. And so he states this truth in the form of a rhetorical question and the essence of his point is clear. If you follow me, your soul is saved even though this life will be difficult. If you do not... Even if this life or in this life you're able to acquire the entire world and all of its pleasures, your soul will be lost forever. That's the deal. It's that simple. Now last week, by way of introduction, I talked about that the title was The Reality of Discipleship. And reality is always or is is only important in comparison to a notional or idealistic concept. In other words, here's what we wish it were. Here's what we think it might be. Here's what we would like it to be. But here's the reality. Here's the way Jesus lays it out. And I believe that there are many who have been deceived into imagining a kind of discipleship, a kind of Christian living that's rather complex. You might say, well, it's complicated. There is Jesus, and there's what I believe in my heart, and there's my Sunday morning hour of power. And then there's sometimes some Bible reading and some prayer, as long as nothing else comes up. But then there's the rest of my life. There's my family, my finances, my job, my hobbies, my career, my personal time, the clout that I have with my peers who look at me and and are going to wonder why I'm doing this or why I'm doing that. They're the plans that I have made for myself. The plans that I have made for my family. The plans that I have made for my children. You name it. 
somehow it escapes under the radar or stands outside of their understanding of discipleship. There's discipleship and then there's all of my stuff. These types of people, they may not say it. Almost never they'll say it because nobody's really gutsy enough to say it. But their life would say, following Jesus doesn't influence those things very much. And if it does, if Christianity does seem to influence all of my stuff... It's a complicated cesspool of my personal feelings mixed in with my American dream logic with a dollop of 21st century Christianity mixed in for good measure. That's what we think. We think it's complicated. But it's not. Jesus says, give it up or go to hell. Deny yourself or you're lost. It's not complicated and yet we make it complicated. We would say, Jesus cares very little about my regular life as long as when it comes to my religion, what I believe in my heart, I believe the right things. That's a damnable heresy. If what you believe about Christianity does not affect every second of your day, it's not Christianity. As Paul Washer says, you don't get hit by a Mack truck and not look different. Not act different, not think different, not live differently. We've made it complex when Jesus lays it out so very clear. You do not follow Jesus on your own terms. He's not handing out contracts and saying, well, let's, let's negotiate the terms here and whenever we can come to an agreement, well, then we'll, do, we'll, we'll make the deal. We'll seal the covenant in my blood. That's not what He said. Jesus is King. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Master. Jesus is Ruler. Jesus is Sovereign. You don't come and say, well, I'll follow you as long as I can keep these things. If you're following Jesus on your own terms, it's not Jesus you're following. It's yourself. And maybe you have long hair, and maybe you're wearing a first century tunic, but you're not Jesus. You're following yourself. Jesus puts it very simply, very plainly. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? We are called to yield up anything and or everything for the sake of following Christ. So what does this look like? What does this yielding fully look like? This is what it looks like. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. That's what it looks like. You see, Jesus took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. Our men will will remember, he became a man just like us. He didn't claim 
any, any superpower where he was invincible to pain, physical pain, spiritual pain. And as he approached the hour to which all of human history prior to this point had led him, he was apprehensive. He knew what was about to happen. He was about to suffer at the hands of men a physical pain that none of us can ever imagine. And then he would go to the cross and he would suffer under the full weight of the wrath of God for all of our sin, a pressure and a burden that none of us can imagine. He was in his self apprehensive. He knew what was coming and he knew that it would resemble everything that opposes self-gratification and pleasure. It was the opposite. Everything in his human nature said, do not do this. If you can find a way out, get out. It will be easier if you just do this. Maybe we can come up with another plan, Father. We are sovereign, correct? We can do this differently. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Not what I want, but what you want, Father. Remember that as Jesus hung on the cross, He could have summoned a myriad of angels to come, purge the earth with fire, wipe it clean, trample all of His enemies under His feet in a moment. And yet He suffered. Surely we would think, this is how oftentimes we think, having made it into our mid-twenties and thirties, Surely after being a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief for his whole life, surely he had accrued some sort of favor before God where he could just sit this one out. And yet he offered himself himself up as a ransom for many. And he did not do this on his own will. He did not do the will of the or his own will. He did the will of the Father who had sent him. That's our example. That's our pattern. The student is not greater than the teacher. If he suffered, we suffer. If we want to get out of suffering, we are reminded, not my will, but yours be done. So let's consider these truths as we come to the Lord's table. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That though He was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but yet He humbled Himself and He took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Have that mind. Not my will, but yours be done.